I'm Justin. I'm Erica. And I'm Jim, and this is a very special episode of Topic Lords, the only place on the internet where you can hear people discuss holiday-related topics. Because it's technically still the holidays. As we record this, we are right in holiday season, and I'm going to push up its release so it, we, we get it in right before the end of holiday season, so technically it's a holiday episode. Hooray! I was thinking when I suggested this that it would be sort of relevant to the people who celebrate Christmas on January 6th. And I think, Jim, you pointed out that this is the least served Christmas demographic that there is. So this is dedicated to them. It's for you guys, the January 6th folks. Uh, Justin, would you like to introduce yourself and or plug something? Well, I am Justin Melvin. I am a software developer in Seattle, and I am a puzzle enthusiast, and I don't really have anything specific to plug. I'm just happy to be here. All right. Uh, Erica, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have something to plug? Uh, sure. So I'm Erica. I'm at TRB on Twitter. You can follow me. I'll probably follow you back and then... We can mutually mute each other when we find out that we don't share common interests. I will plug the Frog Fractions 2 soundtrack because I spent a lot of time pulling together artists to contribute to the ARG soundtrack. And you can find that either on Materia Collective or you can go to Ryan Ike's Bandcamp page and download it from there. Yeah, the liner notes are particularly good. I don't even know if you can get the liner notes anymore. I was looking around for this, but um, yeah, there was some really wonderful art by Jenny Plodna. Some good stuff that I think you'll have to find out whether that's waiting for you in the download. Yeah, I, I can say um, not having contributed any music to this album, the Frog Fractions 2 soundtrack is one of the most amazing albums. <laughs> Just like an incredible selection of really, really good stuff. Thank you. I think my um, the people who I asked to contribute music would be really happy to hear that, and I'll send them this podcast later. Um, oh, sure, yeah, yeah. They're they're friends and associates all the way back to high school for me. Uh, you guys ready to start on some topics? Sure. I love topics. Who doesn't love topics? So these are all holiday related or almost holiday related topics today. Um, Justin, your topic is children are terrifying. Oh, they are so terrifying, especially this time of year. It really brings out the uh, the horrors of, of children. So the kids are, you know, out of school. They've been you know, going with cabin fever for a week, maybe two weeks now. And they get up to all kinds of shenanigans. Like you know, my three-year-old opened up all of the Advent candy doors and snuck them into his Halloween bag and brought them to his room to eat or climbed on to the top of the refrigerator and <laughs> tried to get all of the... Well, he pushed a chair from the kitchen over to the refrigerator, climbed up, and got the cookies that were on top of the fridge. Nothing is safe. Uh, children are terrifying. They'll develop problem-solving skills that solve problems that they really shouldn't solve. That long predate their ability to have thoughts about ethics and morality. <laughs> sure. It, it, you know, you might have a problem like, how can I be a pirate in the kitchen? And you think, man, I really should get the biggest sword that I can find in the kitchen. So uh, there you go with a two-year-old with a chef's knife running around. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> I think that you have to provide a little context 
to the listeners, how many children do you have? Uh, six. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, I, will, I will say I have one child and I am still terrified. It, it is a comfort to me that in prehistoric times, only half of children died before the age of five. Oh my goodness. <laughs> So they never amassed the numbers that they would need in order to overthrow you. <laughs> right. But also like nowadays with modern medicine and modern like like safety advancements, I think Winston has a pretty good shot of reaching the age of five. I think I saw you tweet the other day, Winston, like overcoming the child lock in your kitchen and like emptying a cabinet, right? Oh, yeah. Just by ripping off the front of the drawer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's creative problem solving for you. Yeah. When April and I did the 23andMe thing a couple of years ago, and one thing it told us both is that we have the, um, it expects us to have the musculature of elite power athletes. Don't piss off your kid. (laughs) You're just, you're fucked, man. Sorry. Right. Winston is definitely going to be a strong boy. How old do you have to be before you stop being a kid? Like 25. 25, yeah. Yeah, that's my cutoff also. Isn't it like half your age plus seven is is how much that's, kids are? Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> I have a high school student who um, contacted me and asked me to mentor him in his senior thesis. So he's doing a thesis for his high school project. So he's 18, which means that he can vote and drive and marry people and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But it's it's horrifying to me. And he is he already knows how to code in Java and multiple other languages. And he wants my help learning how to code. But I just code in this like really obscure language that only ecologists use. Uh, and he's, he's far more advanced than I am in some of these things. Uh, it's embarrassing to me. So I think this is like where adults just have to sort of step up and pretend to be experts in things. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what attitude I should take with this kid who can just learn anything at the drop of a hat. Um, I mean, he obviously hasn't read books that I've read, so he's kind of doing things without knowledge, but he's like a crazy robot that's like out of control and has massive processing power, but doesn't quite know what he's doing yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I do miss having a teenager's energy and ability to learn. That's, that was right. a very special time. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And I think if I had my own kids and saw this like transition from being like a child to kind of like a more mature pre-adult that is capable of these kind of abstract concepts and stuff, this would make sense to me. But this person has just dropped into my life with all of these skills and no knowledge or judgment and uh, and trying to sort of drive him through this project, you know, carefully and with the sense that I could mentally scar him if I say something critical to him. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with him. <laughs> Would you describe it as like a, a jockey and horse scenario? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know who the jockey is. <laughs> right? Like, is he, is he, you know, taking advantage of my knowledge of the track or uh, carting him to the next thing? Or is it the other way around and I'm driving this massive, powerful thing to the next goal? I have no idea. But it's a 
it's a good analogy for something. <laughs> that does raise a, a good question. Why don't we have things like equestrian events, but it's kids? Why can't we do betting at the horse track with uh, watching toddlers like sort of fall over each other? <laughs> this is the kind of thing that occurs to you if you have six children. <laughs> it's true. Like we already have like three-legged races or hell, like like a track meet at high school. De- somebody could definitely start taking bets and I'm pretty sure it's against the law, but that just means that an internet startup has to do it. I think you have to pay the kids, and I think you have to pay attention to child labor laws, but I think you could do it. There are enough kids who would be interested. You guys ready for another topic? Yeah. Well, Erica, you have here, uh, we all built the Frog Fractions ARG, and we could talk about the Thanksgiving puzzle and Christmas release, very cleverly tying our collective bragging to the holiday season. (laughs) So this is true. Like all three of us worked on the ARG. Yeah, to me, it was just kind of, I just wanted to bring it up because I don't think you've actually like spoken to Justin before. I have not, except on Twitter. It's true. In planning this podcast. Yeah. And um, it was just kind of um, exciting to me to kind of be able to introduce you guys. Like I wanted to think about the things that we had in common. And I obviously it's it's the Frog Fractions 2 arc. It would be neat to kind of dedicate something larger to this project that involves all of us again. And that's sort of why I started writing that book, which I'm I'm still thinking about. You know, I'd like to kind of preserve aspects of the ARG while they're still fresh enough in my memory that I can point to all of the assets and talk about the puzzle construction. Yeah, I think that would be really cool. Have you so you've been thinking about that, but have you started any work on it? Like have you written anything down? Yeah, I mean I, I set up some chapters. It occurs to me now that the way to write the Frog Fractions book is to put it inside of another book, not tell anybody about it. <laughs> Just hide it inside of your thesis. Right. <laughs> right. I get like a big I forget what that's called, but like you can um put like uh, numbers out and have the numbers point to the words on specific pages and you can just construct a whole book that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we could do That's one right, of those. a book cipher. Yeah, a book yeah. cipher. Yeah, yeah, we could do a book cipher that is the Frog Fractions Arg. Nobody would know because nobody has patience for these things anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I did a, um, a GameFAQs style guide to Frog Fractions 2 that we put on the floppy disk that comes with the, that came with the uh, limited run edition of oh, Glittering yeah. Grove, Frog Fractions 2. I still haven't seen that. Yeah, me either, actually, because it's in, my, my copies are in LA waiting to, okay. <laughs> waiting to come to me. But uh, I made that guide in part, in part because it was fun, but also in part because I wanted to document how a lot of this game works and a lot of the secrets in it while that stuff was still in my head. Yeah, so um, I think for me, a lot of what I do is write for a living. And the way that I can successfully do that is to sort of dedicate some amount of time to that project every day where I'm just writing and disconnected from the internet. It doesn't always work. And I often need something more like I need somebody to like watch me write to keep me on task. I I guess that's called like body doubling. Like I need somebody just to sit there and make sure that I'm writing. Physically threatened. (laughs) You know, I'm pretty sure there are like Skype support groups where like you could Skype with somebody and you just know that they can see you, even if they're not actually looking at the screen. 
Yeah. Because you know they can see what you're doing. They know you're not working or they might know wow. you're not working. Yeah. I, I mean, my friend Barbara actually had like ran a, a thing to teach adults how to read and they just had dogs and the dogs just like are so happy that somebody is reading to them and paying attention to them that like the adults learn to read faster when they're not being judged and the, the dog is there to sort of like smile at them and like pant and look happy and satisfied. Um, yeah, they do the same thing with uh, kids and teaching them to read. The library has a reading with Rover. Wow. Oh, really? So yeah. maybe we just need to Skype with a dog. Yeah. <laughs> you should investigate having a dog come on to the, the podcast. That's a good idea. People, you know, open up. Or I could just have a friend of mine come on and do a dog voice the whole time. <laughs> ruh, ruh. So are you are you in the midst of writing this or like what's your what's your stage of writing this? It was done a while ago. It's actually oh, okay. On the floppy now, as it was when it got printed a few months ago, so it had had to be done already. But I actually wrote it over a year ago. Just I didn't even know it was going to be part of this project at that time. I just did it for fun, and mm-hmm. I tried to upload it to GameFAQs. Actually, why? What <laughs> GameFAQs has standards? This is news. That the rejection notice was just the one word. It was the word boxing. <laughs> boxing. What? <laughs> I, I was like looking from GameFAQs for like guidelines for what this could mean. There's just, I think this is just like what that word means has to be like cultural knowledge. I don't think it's documented anywhere. Well, wasn't there part of fr- Fractions 1? Yeah, it might also have been a really obscure joke about the previous game that I made. <laughs> like, if so, I don't get it. <laughs> and maybe that's the fun of it. Is GameFAQs, like, is it for walkthroughs or can you just answer general questions because i wonder if it was just they didn't like the format no they accept all sorts of guides uh-huh. they let you put like maps there like walkthroughs are more, way more common than facts actually i think you need to write um you know a, a stubborn i need to write to the new york times <laughs> response <laughs> you could probably upload a steam guide Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Well, now it's now it's a secret. It's a special bonus exclusive to the limited run edition of, of Glittermitten Grove, so I can't put it anywhere else. Yeah, right, right. Well, although nothing's stopping someone else from like paste binning, right, <laughs> or posting it on Reddit. All right, let's talk about this Thanksgiving puzzle. Oh yeah, um, maybe Justin remembers this a little bit better than I do. It was a it was a code. Block. It was basically like a bunch of characters that contained code in a particular language. So this was a puzzle that Micah Edwards built, and I think he just had it on hand. Oh, right. Yeah, so he had one of those obfuscated programming languages. Uh, Befunge, I think. It's like one of the ones that's supposed to be held to, to write Hello World in. Is, is Befunge the one that like is two-dimensional? No, it's one where... It's like a base ternary system instead of binary. You don't have regular control statements. You have things like, please execute something. Uh-huh. And it will, under some conditions, it will do what you you say. And otherwise, it will modify itself in some way. And anyway, it's supposed to be difficult to rationalize about what it's doing just by reading the code. Befunge is the 2D one. I think you're talking about Malbolge. Oh, Malbolge is the other one. Which one was it? I don't remember. All right, I'm just going to load up the Game Detectives page. Yeah, this is a puzzle that dropped on Thanksgiving 
in a YouTube video. It was a channel that I was maintaining for, it was supposed to be the Museum of Artifacts from Collapsed Timelines. And so the description of the video was this puzzle. All right, here's what the here's what the Game Detectives page says. This is a Befunge program. When it runs, it will print, what's the sound of infinite turkeys? Gobble, 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 gobble. The part gobble is repeated forever in an infinite loop. Taking into account when it was posted, this puzzle is probably a Thanksgiving greeting to us. Oh my god, my cat is like so upset that I'm not asleep. Like he's jumping on the computer and he's jumping in my lap. Uh, if he shuts off the... What's what's the cat's the name? The cat is named Mo'o. He has a Polynesian name that means gecko. We got him from the field station in French Polynesia on Moria. Uh, he was the field station cat. And uh, people weren't taking care of him, so we just took him home. What a lucky cat. Yeah, he he's definitely used up many of his nine lives, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad this cat joined us on the podcast. <laughs> he's so cute. I think he's off to explore something else. I think we're okay for a while. Have fun, kitty. Yeah, and then Frog Fractions actually released on Christmas uh, to everybody's great surprise because we left that in the hands of the players. You know, like, we couldn't basically, like, break character. So everybody who was a dev for the ARG was also in the chat sort of monitoring what was going on in Discord. It led to some problems a little bit. Like Justin Bortnick was the only person who was like known to be a dev and uh, everybody thought that he was kind of pulling the strings, but he wasn't involved in these last puzzles. And then Justin Melvin uh, also had an account and like he and Justin, you and I interacted in the chat, but I didn't know it was you, which led to some kind of like confusion. <laughs> it was a little chaotic, but uh... it was chaotic. Yeah. So, so yeah. what was it like from uh, from your perspective uh, to have this thing that you've spent so much time on sort of out of your hands and into the world? The launch was pretty amazing, uh, like a culmination of a very strange series of. As soon as I handed off the uh, the ARG to originally to Justin Bordnick, I ignored it almost as much as I could almost um, just because like I had this game to make. And so I needed to focus my mental energy on that. And then the same thing happened when um, Erica joined. Er- Erica wanted to work on it. And so I just like, like, yeah, I've got this game to make. You go ahead, do what you want is basically how it went down. Um, and then only right at the end did like we all start thinking about how can we tie all these threads together into something that makes even makes just a little bit of sense. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, one one thing I remember being very strange was being in the in the Discord for the people who were solving the arg and like like one person or a small group of people had figured out where the game was hidden and I asked them to keep it on the down low just because I wanted to keep the secret a little bit longer and watching them like cover up the clues they had followed like deleting messages like kicking people out who were talking about the wrong thing it was very strange to see people wanting to go to that effort to just keep it a mystery they basically ensured in some ways that it was not a commercial success although like i have to say like if you want something to be a commercial success like you cannot hide it in something and not announce it Oh yeah, no, I I did that to myself. That was that was my own fault, and, and like there was no other way to do it. The the Kickstarter was built around this premise that 
I would be not doing traditional promotion. And like in, in a sense, that was what I did instead of promotion was have this audacious idea that people couldn't help but talk about and think about. Yeah, but I do think that like if I had gone back on that promise at the very last second and put the game on Steam being called Frog Fractions 2, I do think it would have probably sold like five times as many copies it would be. It would be definitely be have been a betrayal. Yeah, no, that wasn't that wasn't the desired outcome of anyone. It's just that I felt a little bit responsible just because you know I was kind of like tying up the arg that they had released it on the one day that like nobody was going to be looking at Steam. Well, I think another major mistake that that I made a tactical error was Steam enforces very strictly rules that are based on like truth and advertising laws around the world about how often you can put your game on sale. <laughs> and so we had a, a launch sale for Glitter Mitten Grove before Frog Fractions 2 was even part of it. And so when it was time to actually like ship the real game, we couldn't put Glitter Mitten Grove on sale again because it was too soon. Oh, wow. Yeah. If we had um, been able to put a discount on that, looking at games like Undertale and West of Loathing, which I feel like have kind of a similar audience... And we're each priced at about $10 um, or, or at launch, we're priced at about $10. I think that was probably the, would have been the financially like the right move, but also like the reason we priced it at 20 was that it was partly political. It was partly like that. I strongly believe that games should cost money. They should cost money, but people also have to pay that money. So I don't know, maybe you've never spent time down in the business department at your college but there's like the law of supply and demand that you can learn in economics and there's like marketing there are classes on these things <laughs> right. no i i thought it was i thought it was amazing i thought it was really wonderful i was happy to see people like planning it and talking about it and stuff yeah yeah agreed yeah you guys uh ready for another topic sure i love topics all right, so I have a topic here, uh, bringing interesting puzzles to people with boring jobs, which is sort of a holiday gift. This came up because I've been trying to convince the IRS that I already paid taxes in, I think, 2018. It was because they sent me like a balance due notice for an amount that I definitely wrote them a check for and that they definitely deposited. The IRS did? It, yeah. Wow. It's possible that like there was confusion because of our name change. Uh, and so I um, I went into my, the branch of my bank to ask them to like, can you pull up these records for, for, for this, de- che- this check that got deposited? And like the person I was speaking to like seemed very excited about this puzzle that I had brought. Like it was the most interesting thing <laughs> that they had the opportunity to do all day. He talked about feeling like a private investigator. And I, ho- I thought that was really neat to like kind of take that attitude to both to your job and also to like the idea of like maybe the the retail worker or what have you that I bring this problem to maybe they won't you know be upset by it and like have be upset that they have to do this work but maybe they'll actually enjoy it like if they actually enjoy their job so you know like weaponizing that a little bit um are you gonna start adding flavor text to these things and like coming up with a sequence of unlocking his. Oh yeah. Like a, like a, a word problem. Another uh, example of this that I just remembered, I was in a restaurant that had a live pianist and 
it was I forget whose birthday it was, but when this the pianist found out it was the person's birthday, the pianist played Happy Birthday on the piano. Mm-hmm. And then jokingly I asked them to play it again in minor. And then they were like, okay, and they played Happy Birthday, but transposed to a minor key. And again, this seemed like like whoa, a, a fun puzzle that I get instead of playing Billy Joel's Piano Man again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an example of a puzzle that I brought to somebody at work. This is sort of an unfair question for Justin because he designs puzzles with people at work. Oh, oh yeah. actually, you don't work at Microsoft anymore, right? No, but I still write for the, the puzzle hunt. Okay, okay. So, I mean, there are explicit puzzles floating around here. But your story reminded me of my friend Bill from high school. Uh, when he went to college, like he could improvise anything on the piano and he would go into these rehearsal rooms and somebody would be playing, you know, Moonlight Sonata in the room next to him and he could kind of hear it and he would play the Moonlight Sonata in a different key. And um, <laughs> somebody would play uh, like Gershwin and he would like play along with them. And when they stopped to hear whether he was, you know, somebody else was playing this, he would stop too wait for them to start again and then he would start playing with them and start improvising and when they stopped he would stop and he could like drag this out for like an hour and some people would like start getting that it was a joke and start playing with him and some people would like immediately leave Uh (laughs) the room like he had interrupted their practice oh yeah because it's haunted yeah (laughs) right So, um, so my wife is a, a librarian, and they have a program at the library called Ask a Librarian. Anybody can ask a question, and the librarian will do their best to use all of the materials at the library and all of the databases and, and everything to get as accurate an answer as possible. That sounds like an amazing job. So, yeah. Most of the time, people ask things that are pretty boring. Oh, well, a lot of questions about genealogy and, and, and so on. One day, someone came in and asked, okay, I think there's paranormal activity on my property. Mm-hmm. Can Ooh, you see if, if anybody died at, at the house I live at? Or maybe if it's on uh, an ancient burial ground? Or I think it might be fractals. It might be fractals. <laughs> and so she said, okay. And went through and looked through all of the, the records of anybody who, who lived there based on public records and when they died and cross-referenced that and then had a list and then said, okay, here are all the people who have died in, in the house or on the property that you're, you're at. And so it might be one of these people. He, he said, hmm, okay, thank you. No, nothing about the fractals? She- <laughs> so was one of the person who died a fractal? <laughs> I, I I think that that is still unresolved. It's a, a mystery. All right. Next time we do the next time you do the ask a librarian thing, I need to go to your wife and ask her to finish this job. Resolve the fractals. Is this like a a Julia set type of deal or hey, what is the what is the history what? of fractals in this house? This is very entertaining to me. I know. <laughs> so the the person who is my postdoctoral supervisor now is famous for. 
promoting this idea that like all of natural phenomena are fractals. So you can go anywhere on the internet and find clips of him saying it's all fractals, like as if it were like all turtles all the way down. <laughs> I don't, I don't agree, but there is like something to it. Um, so to hear that your wife did not find evidence of fractals on this guy's lawn is, you know, maybe, maybe something I should bring up with my boss. I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, are you guys ready for another topic? Sure. So this is a, I paraphrased a write-in question. Uh, what were you doing before you're doing what you are now? All right. All right. What's the timeline? Yeah, right. Like, are we talking yeah. about? So the context of the original question was like, it was, it was a question about like how you've changed over the past decade. Mm-hmm. Not like I had tacos and, and then. <laughs> yeah. So let's say, let's say over the past 10 years, like what, what's different? The past 10 years of my life have been like relatively stable actually, which is nice. Okay. Let's, let, we need to, we need to change the timeline. Yeah. So we have an interesting answer. Yeah. I mean like 10 years ago, I was a graduate student. So I had like chosen my topic, like all topic lords. The, the one about building the frog fractions arg. <laughs> right. <laughs> that too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at some point you just have to kind of pick your topics and run with them. But before I was a graduate student in ecology, I had been a graduate student in physics, been a graduate student in economics. I had been a software designer. I had been like a freelance book writer for the Princeton Review. I became like a a burn boss in North Carolina, like in order to do habitat restoration for birds. There was a lot of there were a lot of topics in my life, and then they all kind of collapsed into like one graduate program at UC Berkeley. So you were a grad student in, in several different, like, what's the, what was the process like on that of finding what you actually wanted to be a grad student in? Yeah, it's been, it's been kind of interesting watching people tweet. There's been this sort of like, what were you doing as a game dev, you know, in your 20s or like in the last decade or something. And like people's 20s seem to be a mess. And I, I think that that would sort of characterize me as well. Uh, <laughs> I I studied physics as an undergraduate, and that itself was a process of like I had majored in chemistry, and when the chemistry professors would answer my questions about um, like why phenomena were the way they were, uh, I switched to physics because it was answering the questions I wanted answered. It was like a process of like not taking no for an answer or not. Um, not accepting that like some things are known, but I'm not going to be able to know how they're known. <laughs> I also wanted to do conservation work. Um, so when physics didn't work out for me, honestly, because of sexual harassment, I left and I, I went into an economics program because I, I figured that like you can do conservation better by using the economy and its sort of handles to get programs in motion and do land conservation and kind of move money towards conservation. And then I, I realized that economics is dreadful. <laughs> it's really dreadful. And economists are dreadful. <laughs> What's Who's an example of a dreadful economist? Oh, just, just everybody I met, you know, like everybody in my department, except, except for my advisor, Tom Stevens, who is a real gem of a human, a very sweet person. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't, I didn't stick around long enough in economics to really understand personalities of economics, but 
they're they're all old white men. In in physics, like you have these books, like the, the thermodynamics book we used started with like so and so was like a brilliant student and um, had all of these like wonderful theories about um, the motion of particles, but was ignored and killed himself at the age of like twenty four. Um, his you know his best student was also brilliant and also ignored and met the same fate at the age of like 22. Now it turns to you, young student, to take up the mantle of thermodynamics. Nope. These were the kinds of like narratives and books and personalities that we were working with. So I wasn't expecting a lot from economics, but it, it also just didn't deliver anything good. And then eventually I went into bird watching. Um, I just took a, a job where I could be out in the field all summer. And um, I did that for a couple of years until I went broke. And then like out of out of need, I took up a software developing job. And uh, I, I got yelled at one morning for being late. I was late because there had been like a mixed flock of cedar waxwings and robins in these like trees. They're like ornamental cherry trees. And I had just watched them for 15 minutes. And so when I got yelled at for being 15 minutes late, that was sort of when I decided that I was also done with that job. So I went back into field ecology and I um, decided to leave Massachusetts and just moved to this lake where I lived with a bunch of fire technicians in North Carolina and a place I had never seen with a bird that I had never seen. And that was like probably the most interesting and formative experience of my life. Yeah, that was like a town of like 300 people. It was it was very, very unusual and interesting and nobody knew why I was there. And like, I kind of refused to leave because it was so interesting. Um, but eventually I went back to graduate school when I realized that like the North Carolina community that I was part of did not accept like a an unmarried physicist from the Northeast as like one of their members. So I just eventually went back to graduate school because I had more to do. I wanted to do more with conservation. So I went directly into ecology. This sounds extremely frustrating. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's it's like once I got to graduate school in Berkeley, it wasn't like everything resolved. You know, there's still challenges and assholes and crazy problems with my advisor and stuff like that. But I think I had like more of a sense of what I wanted to get out of it at that point. So I stuck to that. Right. All right, Justin, see if you can beat that story. <laughs> right. You know, it's it's hard. My story involves uh, far fewer birds and uh, fewer job changes, but probably more children. Yeah, so roughly 12 years ago, I didn't have any children. And now I have, uh, you know, infinitely more of them. Yeah, I was living... It's a lot of children. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I also have a story where I was in... Grad school, um, I was working on a, a doctorate in mathematics and ended up leaving it and getting a software development gig and a ton of children. Uh, and then moving from Atlanta over to Seattle. And uh, that's where I've been for the last several years. Your story is much more interesting and complicated than that. I also, I guess 10 years ago, I didn't really have hobbies as much. A lot of my life was, I guess, more around damage control and making sure that uh, 
the people I needed to take care of got what they needed. And now I think things are a lot more stable and uh, I'm able to relax and have time to do other things like uh, puzzles for one. What about you, Jim? Yeah. So the question that I paraphrased was basically about my life since I released Frog Fractions. So I guess I can talk about that. Before I um, worked on Frog Fractions, I was working at a uh, web design company. I was a, a programmer doing backend server stuff. And, you know, that's fine. Like, I could have kept doing that for the rest of my life and been felt fine about it. Like, it's usually interesting work, and I uh, was very comfortable doing it. But I was always doing this game thing on the side. I put out Frog Fractions as a a product of my hobby with the intention of, like, this will be a a fun thing for my friends to play. And it kind of just blew up. I suddenly had this reputation as a designer who did interesting work, and decided to see if I could pursue that into, like, maybe I can actually make a career out of this. Um, and the first thing I did was, like, I went and, because I was terrified of following up the game I had just made, uh, I, I hid behind someone else's project, and I was the uh, programmer on Gunhouse, which is uh, which was Brandon Sheffield's baby. Like, I did design work on it, but it's really his game. That was about a year-long project, and I barely got paid for it because the publisher had given us a deal expecting that we would take three months to make the game and we got paid for that amount of time and instead we took a year to make the game because we wanted to do a good job and so like i at that point was basically broke i decided it was time to do the kickstarter for the sequel i didn't have an idea for what the game would be for the sequel to frog fractions i didn't have an idea what the sequel of the frog fractions would be but i had the idea for how to sell it which was to make the kickstarter with the the idea of not telling people when the game is released this game will just exist at some point in the future uh which really resonated with people and that was fun and then i got trench mouth (laughs) From the from the stress of running the Kickstarter, basically. So is trench map a thing? Like, could that come back? Is that something that you have forever now? Is it like um, is it like chickenpox, or is it is it gone? It's it's basically a bacterial infection, and I think like I do still have like low key. I think those bacteria are still kind of hanging out because I do every couple of months I get the same sort of swollen tender gums a little bit that the trench mouth was like turned up to eleven. Wow! So I do think they're still like they're waiting for me to be that stressed again so I can so I can succumb. This is the legacy of your work. Yeah, that's right. Long after I die, those bacteria will still be hanging out in my jaw. But yeah, I traded my oral health for the chance to work on weird troll games for a living. And then I spent like two and a half years just like day to day. Like I, um, the main thing that changed from what I, what I do now versus what I was doing before Frog Fractions is like, I am now, I'm in a much more creative role. I mean, I'm in a much more like a role of much greater responsibility. And so it's really kind of a mental change of like, I don't know, first of all, I can, I can, if I feel like doing a certain kind of work, I can just do that. But also I have a responsibility to make sure that all the work that I do adds up to a product I can ship. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like there's uh, on the one hand more freedom, but on the other hand, that just means that like, it's my own responsibility to rein myself in. Like it took me, I would say that I learned how to work on purpose 
as opposed to like because I was excited about something like halfway through Frog Fractions two develop two's development. Mm-hmm. So did you have to ever change your sleep schedule to be on somebody else's somebody else's work schedule, or have you always had the ability to kind of make your own weird hours? Because I know you keep pretty weird hours. It definitely peaked early on in the Frog Fractions 2 development cycle. Mm -hmm. Like when I worked at RoseArt, I had not nine to five hours, but like regular working hours. Mm -hmm. And I decided during development of Frog Fractions 2 that like, no, I'm just going to sleep when I want to sleep and I'll get up after I'm not tired anymore. And I did that and I was incredibly happy doing that. And then like I met my wife um, and she has a very different schedule than I do. And so we had to come to a compromise where we were both happy with how we were sleeping and still spending enough time together to be happy. Mm-hmm. And so I have a much less wild, much more predictable sleep schedule now that I'm still content to do. Um, one thing that's changed very recently in my life is that I have a, I now have a CPAP machine, which I'm not actually sure if it's helping medically, but it is... It creates, it's very good at creating the psychological like context shift of like, now is the time to sleep. Like when I put that mask on, it Mm -hmm. is time to sleep. And so my brain is like, oh yes, I I will sleep now. And that's happened over the course of like a month. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So I I have one too. The the thing I noticed is it doesn't really help me sleep better, Mm. but it definitely helps my wife sleep better because I I sound like a lawnmower when I... (laughs) passed out. Right. And uh, yeah, the CPAP prevents that from happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice bonus. But yeah, the the rituals to go to sleep definitely help because it gets you into the, you feel like the the pressure of the the air and and now you know it's time to pass out. Justin, did we already do you? Did we already talk about your life? Yeah, he gave us he gave us a short answer, which is That's not. That's fine. Is not. I've become, yeah, I've become more interesting and uh, also more boring at the same time. You know, I have more dictionaries now than I ever had in my life, and I couldn't be happier. That that was the answer we were waiting for. Thank you. All right, good. All right, uh, the next topic, Erica. Your topic here is weird Christmas slash holiday foods. Okay, so so Justin and I were actually just talking about this right before the show. I thought my holiday food traditions were weird, but uh, they are making something that is outrageous. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you go first, and then I'll, I'll talk about the uh, the Yule sandwich log. Okay. <laughs> so, so my holiday traditions um, are from my Lithuanian family. My um, my mother's side of the family is Lithuanian. My father's side of the family is Ashkenazi Jewish. So we don't have weird Christmas foods on their side, obviously. But in Lithuania, um, you have like pagans and then you have uh, the like Russian Orthodox Church and you have like various forms of Catholicism. So you have all of these like pagan traditions that intersect with Christmas and just lead to these like weird meals. So the big meal is not Christmas, but it's Christmas Eve, which you're not allowed to eat meat. So even though my mother is an educated woman, you know, she took us to aquariums, she watched Nova with us as kids and everything. She still thinks of whales as fish because you're allowed to eat them on Christmas Eve. And like that will never change for her. Uh, <laughs> and so also I don't know where meat. Lithuanians were getting whales. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so 
the thing about Lithuania is that um, it was like, it's pretty far north. Um, they grow a lot of root vegetables and like winter winter vegetables um, and they like to eat, but the things that they can make are like just not things that you are going to see for sale in any store because they're horrifying. Huh. So the, the big meal is vinaigrettes. Um, they're, they're, you have to eat 12 things on Christmas Eve and if you don't eat them, you're going to die. And you can actually look this up on Wikipedia and <laughs> they'll tell you all of like the strange beliefs around each part of the meal and stuff. But the vinaigrettes is like, it's a beet salad, but it's made with sour cream and beans and vinegar and peas and carrots and onions and just like a huge amount of pickles. And it sounds horrible. And it's this giant pink mass of food. And I've had a number of friends like just refuse refuse to even try it because it's so unnaturally colored. It like sort of ranges from Pepto-Bismol to fuchsia. Oh. And like it's it's one of the tastiest salads I've ever had, but it can be really challenging to get anybody to try it. Even like kids, you know, even kids born into this tradition, like they look at that and they're like, that's not that's not a food object. What does it smell like? It's it smells like pickles. Okay. The other like very traditional food um, on Christmas Eve is poppy seed soup, and so you would just assume that it's like a million little poppy seeds floating in some broth, right? But it's not. It's like it's it's not that at all. It's like um, it's the kind of thing that you could like fail a drug test on for the rest of your life if you consumed it. I I would say it looks a little bit kind of like a puce soy milk and it's served cold but you get all the grandmas together with all of their rolling pins and they take like kilograms of poppy seeds and just put them in between cheesecloth and just hammer at them all day and they bring the kids in and they sort of hammer at them and then you take the cheesecloth and you squeeze it and it makes this milk with this totally toxic layer of poppy seed fat on top that you have to get rid of and then you just keep squeezing this thing and it just makes more and more of this poppy seed milk. And then to garnish it, you have these, um, they're called hard dumplings and they're supposed to represent food for dead people. And dead people don't need a lot of food because they don't have bodies. So they're these little dumplings that are maybe the size of your thumbnail that if you just directly bit into them, they would like definitely crack one of your molars. <laughs> so you have to... Yeah, they're like hard tack or something. And they also have poppy seeds in them. And you let them float in the soup until like they won't kill you. And then you consume them somehow. So so these are like things that I make now because as an adult, I'm like, oh, this, these are traditions. Like <laughs> I have to do this. But when we have guests over, nobody wants these things or they're like very excited about the first bite and then they kind of like push them to the side. So it's very labor intensive. It is very traditional. Uh, I will, I will keep making these foods, <laughs> but I also consider them kind of weird, but you should hear about this holiday Yule log. All right. So in the interest of, um, as a previous episode talking about uh, rituals for children who are growing up in non-religious households, we have tried to make uh, our own traditions for Christmas for our kids. One of them is a um, we do a, a, a Christmas puzzle hunt on uh, Christmas Eve. 
And we also host a uh, Feast of the Seven Fishes where there are seven different courses of different fish courses. So there could be, I don't know what exactly is on the menu this year. It's, I think we're doing it as a, a potluck. The, the last course, of course, is a Swedish fish on top of uh, pudding or something. For the puzzle hunt, though, I think we have something like 20 different puzzles this year. They're all Every year, it's themed around something different. And uh, Pirate Santa, who is the same as regular Santa, except instead of a, a hook, he has a, uh, uh, he's a pirate. He uh, has an eye patch and a, a candy cane for one of his hands. Uh, also, he's uh, Santa's <laughs> evil brother, and he really likes puzzles and hiding presents. So this year, he is uh, making a, a recipe, and each puzzle gives you a different ingredient in the recipe, and it is something that his uh, mother, mother made for him, which we got out of a mid-century cookbook, I think it's dated 1964, called the Yule Sandwich Log. It is a uh, delectable thing that we haven't made yet, but we will make, and that's the, the denouement of the, the puzzle set is you, you get all of the ingredients, and then finally the meta puzzle the end is the sandwich log they also get presents but you know they also get this uh, delicious sandwich it is uh, comprised of multiple layers uh one of the layers has a uh let's see an, an egg bacon filling with uh, hard cooked eggs crumpled bacon and salad dressing then there's bread then there is a layer of uh, avocado and uh, pineapple uh, which also has uh, lemon juice and more salad dressing and a, a dash of salt then there is a uh, cheese and shrimp filling on the, the next layer, uh, which has a, a half cup of pimento cheese, uh, cream cheese, uh, a half a teaspoon of chili sauce, uh, a half a cup of finely chopped salad shrimp, and uh, some lemon juice. And then, uh, we're not done, there's a cranberry cheese frosting, <laughs> which uh, is cream cheese and uh, cranberry sauce uh, beat together. And then there is a uh, deviled ham and peanut butter filling on the next layer, which is, you know, a can of ham and uh, salad dressing and uh, a chopped dill pickle. Uh, you, you put the whole thing in uh, cream cheese. And then uh, there's uh, canned pears and maraschino cherries for uh, style coming out the side of it. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm excited for you. <laughs> this is called the Yule Log because then you put it in the fireplace and burn it, right? <laughs> burn it, right. <laughs> so we're not the first people to make this. According to people with moderate sensibilities who've tried it, they say it's surprisingly pretty good. You have a, a combination of savory and sweet and salty that is pleasing, even if you, uh, you, you've read the, the recipe and see what's in it. And it's better to sort of close your eyes and just enjoy the, the flavor sensation rather than to think about how the deviled ham, the shrimp, the peanut butter, the pineapple, the pimento cheese, the avocado, and the gelatin all uh, interact together with the hard-boiled eggs. I say, I say you got to think pretty hard about what salad dressing you're going <laughs> to throw onto these things because yeah. that could really make or break the whole dish. It's, it's true. Pro probably not Thousand Island. <laughs> that would be too much. It, it, it's, uh, I, I believe Miracle Whip is, is what the, the, they, they mean by salad dressing. Oh, okay. Okay, fair. I This this caused me to ask a follow-up question, which I will pose again, which is, do you not like your children? Oh, no, I, I, uh, yeah, I want to torture them at every opportunity. What better time than Christmas? 
So, so are you going to have the seven fishes and the Yule log, or are these happening on different days? No, it's the same. It's the same party. Oh my god! Oh my I, I god. think this is going to be kind of more of an appetizer because we're doing this earlier in the day. It has shrimp in it, so it's technically a fish. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, okay, that that clears everything up for me. <laughs> so, Jim. <laughs> What are your interesting holiday foods? Uh, ham. <laughs> That's a good choice. <laughs> I I don't have a I don't have a good answer for this, and I am astonished that both of you have such amazing answers for this. Like there's, I don't. There's still time. There's still time to to come up with a tradition. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You've got days to work on. You know what you're going to do to top the pink salad and the Yule log. <laughs> What about um, what about sweet potatoes with with uh, marshmallows on this? I think this is this is absolutely an abomination, but I know that people demand it. Pe- at yeah, holidays. that's that's not that weird. Like, lots of people eat that. No, that's weird. It's that's a combination sorry. of sweet and savory and salty that is uh, quite delightful. Yeah, it's great. What else do you cook with marshmallows, though? S'mores. Um, so I grew up in uh, in the Northeast in uh, New Hampshire. And uh, I don't know if marshmallow fluff counts as marshmallows, but definitely fluffernutter sandwiches were a big part of my childhood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are uh, you guys ready for another topic? Let's do sure. it. Sure. So this topic is weird holiday birds. My weird holiday bird is when I played uh, Gone Home, there was a very prominent holiday bird, the Christmas duck. Which I thought was something that the like the game made up, that the developers made up, but apparently is a tradition for some people. Huh. There's a which like is, a holiday duck. That's interesting. Just the concept of a like Christmas, the duck being mas- the mascot of Christmas. Hmm. I mean, I arrived at a similar concept. I went to like um, a tag sale when I was living in Massachusetts, and there was this like foot tall white ceramic duck. That they were selling for like a buck or something. And I was just like, I have to have that. So I brought it home and I put it in my doorway. And it was just strange. It was sort of like a garden gnome, except it was a duck. And then I decided that it was going to be like what I decorated for the holidays rather than getting like a tree. I put like little lights around the duck and a star on top of its head. You know, on Halloween, it got to dress up as a human. So I sewed it like a little felt jacket with a tie. <laughs> it's delightful. Um, that's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So I had my own holiday duck and I think that's going to constitute my weird holiday bird. Does the American passenger vision for Memorial Day count? Uh, as a holiday yes, bird? Yes, absolutely. I, I don't know. Sure. Absolutely. Oh, oh um, on our tree, we have two ninja turtle doves. That's pretty good. <laughs> that definitely counts. Jim, hit us with another topic. This is this will be the last topic of the evening. Justin, you have here incorrect plant genuses in video games. All right, so I picked this topic not because I know anything about botany or which genuses anything are, but because uh, I think I saw a Twitter post that Erica posted about having the wrong kinds of cactuses in different games. Yeah, this is like a, this is definitely like a hobby slash pet peeve, but it's not really a pet peeve. I just really like to look at the way that people design plants in fictional universes. Yeah. Um, plants and also birds. So the two things that I kind of do on Twitter that 
are any kind of coherent are um, birds of Google Maps, where I go to different places where I think I can see birds on Google Maps and I try to identify them. Um, so I have a hashtag, which is birds of Google Maps. And um, it's surprisingly hard to see birds on Google Maps. And the other thing that I do is I criticize columnar cacti because right now I live in the Sonoran Desert and I'm keenly aware of what columnar cacti look like and what they don't look like. Uh-huh. Is that the like the cartoon cactus that like a child would draw if you asked them to draw a cactus? Uh, yeah, the saguaro. The saguaro is the columnar cactus that we have in Arizona. But there are... Cacti are very, very diverse. And if you go further south in the Sonoran Desert, like down to Sonora, Mexico, um, there are other kinds of columnar cacti which are much bigger than saguaros. So saguaros can be like 30 feet tall and have like multiple arms. But there are like organ pipe cactuses, which look like organ pipes. Um, There's something called a cardone, which has like a stalk and then it just looks like a an outturned umbrella, but it's enormous and like much thicker than a saguaro. And there's something that uh, in Spanish is called an echo. I forget what the the genus name of it is. Um, but the echo is like, it's almost like a house on top of like a stalk. There's so many arms sticking straight up. They're enormous. I mean, they're puzzling about how they stay up because each one of the arms can weigh like a ton. They have water in them. They're they're bizarre. And like if you just travel down south in Mexico, there are all these things that you'll find local names for, but they're not described well. But anyway, the the saguaros, the way that they show up in video games, like people will put arms anywhere. (laughs) You know, like there's a David Cage game, Beyond Two Souls. Um, So she goes into the desert and they have put like arms down at the base of the cactus, which is just an abomination. I mean, like you can easily search for what these cacti look like and people just take bizarre liberties with them. So anytime I see a cactus in a video game, I talk about where that cactus should be and where it shouldn't be. It definitely should not be in Monument Valley, for example, which I will say again and again is located in the Colorado Plain and not the Sonoran Desert. (laughs) (laughs) This reminds me of seeing fake Atari 2600 screen game screenshots <laughs> where people will like, you know, the little black bars on the left side of the screen, people will just like put those wherever instead of like, they're caused by a certain thing. And you can tell by looking at the screen that like, this is not, this black bar is not in the right place. Right. There wouldn't be a black bar here. It would be over here. Right, right. And and, and like me being like really annoyed by this and re- like knowing full well, nobody else gives a shit. I think it's not like there's a market for that, but there's like a need for that kind of expertise and understanding how to visually process yeah. things. Experts are needed for all kinds of things. And like, you know, I happen to know how to identify plants and bird noises. And, you know, who's to say that you're not going to get subpoenaed in some Supreme Court case? <laughs> right. Oh. You know, to like, is this Atari video capture a forgery? <laughs> somebody <laughs> somebody oh, has man, to know yeah. this. <laughs> that's, that's the plot of my next game. <laughs> There you go. So so Topic Lords has been successful. Yeah. 
But then my, my other hashtag that I coherently uh, tweet on is uh, plants of Star Trek. So I'm very interested in what um, the botany of other planets look like. Oh, yeah. Because I, I study the California Floristic Province and I specifically study Chaparral. And like, you could either think of Star Trek as having been filmed in California, or you could think of it as that there are other planets that have Mediterranean-type uh, shrublands that resemble California, yeah, like, like distributed all over the universe. <laughs> but if you if you go to Plants of Star Trek, you'll see that I label all of these plants uh, that you can see, even down to like what they're eating on all of the planets and like Uhura and her like famous fan dance is like a very specific kind of palm that she's using. So, did you get a chance to play Extra Solar? Oh yeah, yeah. A friend of mine linked me to that game, and I played the entire thing. Oh great, that's great. I'm I'm glad because it's it's gone now. Yeah, it was like an it was kind of like a botany slash ethno botany game. Yeah, a little bit, and I liked it, but. Given how strange plants are, like plants are really strange when you start really studying what they do and what how they interact with each other. I didn't get the entire weirdness of plants out of those games. Like I, I think when people start inventing fictional universes and putting plants in them, they're like, let's make plants pink. Let's make them blue. Like let's let's make them full of something you know let's let's make them bulbous or whatever but they they don't really quite understand what makes a plant alien looking and when you think about alien shapes and stuff you see that plants on earth actually take on a lot of those characteristics Uh, that's interesting yeah you just have to sort of know where to look this has been a lot of interesting topics yeah you guys ready to call it sure Uh, Erica, this is something you want out of your life. Where can people find you on the internet? Oh, God. I don't know. Just, you could look at my Twitter handle at YerikTRB. If you're fascinated by ecology and the Anthropocene, you can go to my Google Scholar page, which you should be able to find with a little bit of sleuthing. Okay. All right. Uh, this is this is an example of presenting strangers with puzzles. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Justin... <laughs> And Justin, um, if this is something you, you want. Sure. You can find me on Twitter at uh, FiretruckNPL. Uh, I have a bunch of puzzles there and a lot of responses to other people's puzzles. So it's probably completely unreadable, but you can find me. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Enjoy your holiday. Happy holidays. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can discuss the episodes at the Topic Lords subreddit at r slash Topic Lords. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can find me on the Fediverse as mogwai underscore poet at mastodon.social. Also, I'm on Twitter. And you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.